We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We're in the garden and uh, verses 39 through 62. Uh, I titled the sermon Anguish in the Garden. Anguish in the Garden. And uh, boy, we're going to see this as Jesus uh, goes now into the garden after the, the supper has taken place and they, they, they're headed out now. It's early, early in the morning on, uh, on Friday morning, the day that Jesus would die. So I titled the first section, The Weight of Gethsemane. The Weight of Gethsemane. He came out and went, as was his custom, which is interesting to note, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, this is apparently a, a, a place that Jesus loved to go. After Passover, he loved to go and pray. And he said to the disciples who he brought with him, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So let's get our bearings here. We're in uh, the city of Jerusalem, and uh, this is just outside the walls. Um, this is the eastern side, so the temple is facing to the east. The Mount of Olives is right here. And then in the Kidron Valley is, and to this day, is an olive orchard of sorts. Um, and right in this area is what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, remember now, this is the middle of the night. So it's dark, and we know from uh, other verses that it's actually a little chilly outside. It's a kind of a cold night, so probably not a lot of cloud cover, clear skies and cold uh, in the, the Jerusalem area. Here's a picture from when we were there, and uh, we'll be there again next year, Lord willing. Um, right here, uh, the, the, uh, the official garden was probably down here, but you'll notice as we study that Jesus traveled a fair amount inside the, the area that was the garden. So Modern-day garden is, is a little smaller. I think it probably was a little more um, uh, of an open area that he could spread out with his disciples and pray. Um, you can see where the temple would have been, much taller than this, towering over. And this is the golden gate that someday Jesus is going to blast open when he returns and enters the city. And uh, so here is his view as he prays at night and he is able to look back up at this city and knows, he knows fully what is about to take place, what is going to happen. So you have the 11. Judas is already gone. And then he leaves a number of them and takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He carries them with him a little farther and then sits them down as well. And he says to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then it says he goes about a stone's throw farther and he begins to pray by himself. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these men. Think how exhausted you would be. This is uh, a nighttime prayer vigil. Jesus regularly did this. This was something that he delighted to do. When he was tired, when he was exhausted, he would find strength in intimacy with the Father, in prayer throughout the night. And so he brings the disciples with him in this work, and he calls them to pray, pray. They're extremely tired. Now, I was seeing a connection here in Jesus' encouragement. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
what would be the temptation of the disciples in this situation? Well, sleep. That's one. Just give way to the flesh, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Discipline your body. Make it your slave. Focus. This is no insignificant night. And it's as if Jesus is saying, join me in prayer. In another gospel, it says that, that Jesus tells his disciples before he heads out into the prayer, uh, out from them, my soul is, is, uh, is weary even unto death. He is, he is saddened and grieved. He's weighed down. So it's as if he's asking the disciples, watch with me, pray with me. It's not the primary thing, but we can certainly say that prayer is one of our greatest weapons in battling the enemy, in battling temptation, in battling the flesh. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray, depend, plead. It's interesting because prayer feels so stationary. It feels so sometimes powerless, right? I mean, well, we're just praying. No, but that's what Jesus in this moment says is the most important thing to do. Pray. Pray. Who are they praying to in this moment? They're praying to the Father, just like Jesus had taught them. Our Father, they are to pray. And so he gives them the assignment and he heads off farther into the garden. It says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down, which is interesting to consider because this is not common for a Jewish uh, a person to do in this time. A Jewish person who is faithful in their prayers would always stand to pray. So that that detail is included by Luke should point us to the fact that Jesus is truly weighed down in his soul, but also physically. He is beginning to feel something very heavy upon himself as he goes into prayer it's as if he is knocked down to the ground in this work he knelt down and prayed we have these words recorded now the question is how do we know these words well i'm not 100 percent sure but i think these were not quiet words that jesus cried out i think he cried these words out aloud with great torture and, and struggle. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's likely that Peter, James, and John would have heard this prayer. What did they make of this? Father, what relationship there is. Eternal relationship. Think of this. Jesus the Son crying out, pleading with the Father. If you're willing, look at that preface. If you will, what a spirit of submission that is. Remove this cup from me. The cup is the cup of righteous wrath which is filled up 
with the fire of his indignation and his retribution against every sin believer that you've ever committed. Think of this. Every sin I have ever committed in my life or will ever commit was in that cup. The wrath for it, the fire, the fury that would otherwise be mine to pay forever in the fires of hell. Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of that cup. And I feel like it's, it's just this weight that is beginning to set upon his shoulders. The reality is beginning to set in and he begins to taste of that cup. Is there any other way? If so, let's do that. Now, how, how does Jesus say these words? Is this, is this wrong for him to say? Is he questioning the Father's plan? Is he God? Some suggest that there's no way that he would have said these words because God is, is, is going to function according to God's will and Jesus is God. Therefore, there can't be any, any disagreement here. And I would say, yes, that's absolutely true. Jesus is both divine and human. And you see this here. You see the, the deity of Christ, but in this moment especially, you get a glimpse up close of his humanity. The humanity. In the deity of Jesus, his will was perfectly in agreement with the Father's. It always was. It always will be. But in his humanity, he would say things like this. I have come to do the Father's will. I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's, that is a submissive, obedient will. And in this moment, as Jesus speaks, he reveals tremendous humanity. This is a real Jesus who's really hurting. He's really suffering. This pain is real. The weight that he feels is real. And he cries out. Now, I love the direction of his cry. He comes to the Father with his pain. He comes in his will. If you are willing, let's do this another way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's Jesus submitting his will to the Father, tucking under the, the plan of the Father who sent the Son on this very mission to do this very thing. Jesus has known it for a long, long time. <clears throat> for those who say it's a lack of faith to pray, Lord, if you will, we pray that this would happen or that you would heal this person. or that I would say that's absolutely not true. It is not a lack of faith to pray according to the will of the Father. It is exactly the pattern of Jesus to call us to pray such a prayer. If you will, not my will be done, but yours. We do not command God. We don't tell him what to do. He's the sovereign. We are the humble servants, your will be done. Jesus gives us such example in this moment. Submission, obedience, dependence, longing, crying out to God, intimacy, run to Him, not away from Him in your pain. So much example for us. The response of the Father 
is, well, no. That's his response. This is the cup. This is the decision. This is the will. This is the plan. This is plan A. It's always been plan A. The cup is yours to carry, son. It's yours to drink to the very last drop. However, I find it just incredible that that God would send an angel to minister to Jesus. Now, we don't know a lot more about this interaction, but we do know it is a gift of God's grace. That in a moment of great struggle in the humanity of Christ, as he is just pleading before the Father, that he would dispatch an angel to come and minister to Jesus. Friends, the same is true of God in our day. God ministers to us in tens of thousands of ways we can't even conceive, and most of the time we can't even see. Think of how many times angelic protection of a sovereign God has been sent and accomplished His protective will, His encouraging will, His loving, gracious heart for us in hard times. I think Someday when our eyes are opened to the fullness of all that is happening all around us, even now in this room, we will be in awe of how much we missed in these short years. How much was happening that we didn't even know in the spirit world all around us. The angel came and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly It says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Hmm. Agony and earnest prayer. There are times, my friends, that God will ordain a situation in your life that is filled with agony, pain, suffering, heartache, such that you feel like you can hardly stand anymore. And in that, He is giving opportunity for you to depend at levels you never knew you could, to trust Him, to wait for Him, to plead and cry out for Him. Jesus once again shows us an example. With great agony comes an increase of the earnestness of our prayers. As the agony increases and that weight begins to be felt more and more, the earnestness of his prayer increases. And it's not just fervency in in the spiritual nature. It is a physical engagement here. Don't miss this. It's cold outside. It's It's a cold night. And Jesus is sweating He is sweating as he prays. So fervent is his prayer that his sweat begins to become blood. This is referred to as, uh, well, let me read this by Richard Baxter first here. His agony was not from the fear of death. We've got to have this in view. Why was Jesus so uh, troubled in his soul? Was it just that he was going to die? No, it was because of the deep sense of God's wrath against sin. It was the cup that he was beginning to taste. A sacrifice that he had to bear. Uh, That was far greater pain than mere dying. Many men have faced death with a lot more composure 
in that than, than this. Jesus is not just on death row facing a, a death. He, he is facing far more than the most torturous death you could imagine. He's facing wrath. Wrath. From 10 million sins and then some. 10 million sinners. The numbers are mind-boggling. How in the world did he do that? It's called hematidrosis. I'm not a doctor, but it's bad. It's a condition when your capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture it causes them to exude blood occurring under conditions, listen, of extreme physical or emotional stress. This is real. It's not made up. Jesus is so fervent in his prayer that his sweat turns to blood. And the disciples see this as he returns. His face is just covered with his own blood as he has so fervently prayed for God to help him carry the load, the weight of what he feels. In the Olive Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, a Gethsemane is, is an olive press. It included a large weight that would press the olives and, and get the oil out, which was very valuable in this day. Before they would go into the press, though, they had to be crushed. And so you would often find, and Jesus probably nearby him was one of these mills that you have a, a donkey or something that would walk in a circle and this round stone would crush the, the olives where they were. And so first you had to crush them, break the skin and, and get them all kind of shredded up. And from there, they would be moved to the Gethsemane, the olive press. You can see that here. It's uh, this area, much like an apple press, they would fill a, a basket and place it under here. And this long log would have all kinds of leverage and weights and stones. You can still see the stones with a hole in the middle. And they would increasingly ratchet up the stones and bring them up. And as they did, the weight and the leverage would press down on those olives. And the force would increase with every ratchet of the stone being lifted, the, the, the pressure was tremendous and it would just push out the olive oil from the olives. It would look like this. Jesus prays in the garden of the olive press. And as he returns to the disciples, his face shone a lot like the olive press would have shown. The weight that he was feeling in these moments is unfathomable. Isaiah 53 speaks to it again. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed, crushed. Those words are not misplaced. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His stripes, or with His stripes, we are, we are healed. Jesus is about His work, and it is, it's about to kill Him before He even 
has been arrested. John Piper says it this way, we will never stand in awe of being loved by God until we reckon with the seriousness of our sin and the justice of his wrath against us. But when by grace we awaken to our unworthiness, when we by God's grace are given eyes to see and hearts to feel the sinfulness of our sin, how hideous it is, how offensive it is to a holy God, how right God is to oppose us as rebels and sinners in his righteous wrath. It's it's by his grace that we begin to see those things. When we see them, we can begin to look on the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and say, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the the wrath-satisfying payment for our sins. Friends, it is in us, it is instinctual to downplay our sin. We we hide just like they did in Genesis 3. We, We run through the garden and we hide our sin. It's not that big a deal. It's that it can't be that bad. Everybody's doing it. How bad could it really be? How good is God? He, he probably just looks right past it. It's not a big deal. I mean, he's God. He doesn't have to make a big deal about sin. Oh, you feel that? We live in a culture that can justify just about anything. We're doing it right now on the news. Literally, like, we're justifying racism to combat racism. How foolish is that? We're justifying violence to combat violence. Where do we get this stuff? Right here. Right here. Sin is serious. And it is the grace of God that opens our eyes to feel the weight of that offense. When the preacher fails to preach about sin, and wrath, the gospel is diminished. Love is not that impressive. Why would we ever cry, save me, if we're not really that bad to begin with? That is the first step of the gospel. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Woe is me. Woe is me. What do I do? I can't save myself. Apart from God's glorious grace, I'm a dead man. Jesus rose from the prayer. Just imagine what he looked like at this point. Sweating. Bloodied. He comes back to the disciples. (laughs) And they're asleep. asleep. It says they're sleeping for sorrow. What does that mean? They're sleeping for sorrow. The first thing I think of when I see that is Jonah. I think of Jonah down in the bottom of the boat, running from God, trying to sleep, to just ignore his situation. Maybe if I sleep long enough, this will all just go away and he'll leave me alone. I don't know what, what all of that means, but certainly there is this total confusion. Their strong king, their Messiah, their Savior is in agony. 
He's writhing in pain in the garden. We don't know what to make of it, and we are insanely tired. Let's just go to sleep. We read in the other Gospels, this was a repeated interaction. Jesus comes back, wakes them up, pray that you may not enter temptation. Goes back, prays, comes back. They're sleeping again, wakes them up, goes over and over and over. They're sleeping. He wakes them up with the question, why are you sleeping? Guys, what are you doing? You just, you, you're sleeping at a time like this? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. And Luke goes uh, to point us to the failure of the disciples. I mean, we see this. Friends, we have to be fair. These men are exhausted. They are weak. Their, their hearts are feeble. And I would say without a doubt, if I was there, I'd be sleeping too. We would collectively be together with this bunch. They represent us. And in that, we fail. The failure of the disciples represents the failure of all of us. We are weak. We are fickle-hearted. We, we fail. We fall. You contrast that with the righteous resolve of Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is, he is faithful. He is fighting for our redemption while we're sleeping. What, do you feel that? He is sweating drops of blood and we are snoring. He is faithful when we fail. He perseveres. Hmm. Now the kiss of betrayal. Right on the heels of this exchange as he wakes them up, the kiss of betrayal comes. Judas comes to his moment. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. This was a lot of people into this garden area. And the man called Judas. Isn't that interesting how Luke presents him? The man called Judas. And then he adds one of the twelve. Just, just to remind us how astonishing this is. That he could do this. One of the twelve was leading the mob. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, it's as if he stops him here, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? Messianic title. Would you betray the Messiah with a kiss? Are you kidding? Are you really going to do this this way? This is what you decided you would do? Jesus is shocked in this moment at the total disregard for Jesus that Judas is showing. He's in awe of the just cold-hearted nature of this betrayal. It's cold-hearted and it's personal. The word here for kiss is kata phileo. It's the same word we use phileo for love. It's kata is a, is a special affection. It's a, a kiss of embrace, a, a kiss of, of affection. 
So the picture we have here is of Judas not just saying, hey, okay, the, the guy who you need to arrest, just so we're clear, the guy who you're looking for, Jesus, is the one that I will kiss. I'm not just going to point to him. I'm going to go up and kiss him. So Judas comes up. He would have embraced Jesus after Jesus says these words. Really, this is how you're going to do He embraces Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. This is unheard of for a disciple to do for a rabbi. Never would there be a disciple who would initiate this kind of affection for his rabbi. Now, the affection was there, but it was always and only the rabbis to initiate with the disciple. Common in this day, right? A a show of affection. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not weird for, for them as it's sort of weird for us, especially during corona, right? For Judas to initiate this exchange with Jesus was basically him saying, I am your equal. I'm your equal. The gall here. Just to be clear, Judas, don't feel bad for this guy. I mean, you've got to feel that his heart is hard. And he runs through the tape with cold-hearted, personal betrayal. Now, we do feel bad in the sense that he was unsaved and he went to hell. But he perpetrated the most offensive sin to date that anyone had committed against Jesus in that kiss. Think of this. This is before the cross. Nobody had sinned against Jesus like that until that kiss came. Now, I want to give some some context because Luke doesn't include this, but John does, and I just got to put it in because I know we're not in the Gospel of John, but this is too epic to, to miss. So just before this exchange takes place and that kiss comes from Judas, John records an exchange. Let me read it to you. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? You feel the scene? Are you there? We got a mob here. We got soldiers. We got, these are trained, military, battle-hardened Roman soldiers. They're stationed in Jerusalem. These are no pushovers, okay? You've got all kinds of people who have come. This is a large group, far outnumbering the eleven. They come in the cover of darkness. They come fierce. They come ready, weapons ready. What's going to happen? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds with these words. I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Oh, to be there for this moment. The disciples watched this. It was one of those special effects moments like, you shall not pass. You know, boosh. 
He flattens the Roman soldiers with words. Don't you think if you're there and you're a Roman soldier and you got the weird hat and the big spear and all the shiny chrome, you know, and you're laying on your back when the guy says those words, Ego me, I am who I am, that you would pause and say, you know, I'm not sure this is the best idea. It was an opportunity. It was a divine declaration of Jesus Christ. The one through whom the Father created all things with the very same words that were spoken when He said, let there be. And there was. That, it's the Son. The same one, right? I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you to them. I am He. Oh, I love Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The great I Am is about to be arrested. When those who are around Him saw what would follow, we're back in Luke, they said, probably Peter, the, the guy who speaks fast and thinks later, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember, we've got two swords. We're packing. We're ready for this. Is it, oh, is it time? Should we do this thing? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Probably Peter. He pulled out the little short sword of the zealot and a swing. Now, this is like a bad dream unfolding. First of all, Jesus wakes them from their sleep, and as he's waking them up, the mob is arriving. So Peter and, and James and John and the rest of the disciples, they're still like, what? Oh, okay, what is going on? What? Torches, light, oh. And this exchange, they get knocked down in their back, and then the kiss, and they're like, wait a second. Hey, what? Are you, did you... And all of a sudden, it's like it happens. Oh, oh, okay. So this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. Peter pulls out his sword, but the problem is, is you got a fisherman with a sword. That's not the combination you're looking for when you're going up against Roman soldiers, right? Peter proves that he's probably a better fisherman than swordsman. And now he's going for the whole thing, but all he catches is the ear because the servant, Malchus, is quick, and he ducks, and somehow it misses his shoulder, takes his ear clean off. Hmm. How's that going to work? Watch the great I am in this moment. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear. I don't know if he, if he reached down and picked up the piece that came off or if he simply regenerated a new one. But he reached out to Malchus, as we learn in another gospel, his name, and he touched his right ear with his hands. And he healed him. Right there. Right in front of everybody. Again. What do we make of this? I would just say this is another confirmation. Another reason for that same Roman soldier with the weird hat to say, oh, definitely, this is not a good... Did you see what he just did? We shouldn't be doing this. Right? I mean, serious. There's no stopping this train. This is going down. Jesus heals this servant. 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders and all this whole crowd, we're talking a lot of people here, have all gathered in. So Jesus, with a loud voice, he says, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Oh, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus wants to point out to them how unrighteous this arrest truly is. He just wants to make clear we are not hiding. We are not rebels. We are not insurrectionists. We are here. I have been in the temple every day. You could have laid hands on me there, but for fear of the people, he knows and they know they couldn't touch him. They wait till the cover of darkness. They want to try to spend as much time in darkness trying to trump up some accusations so that they can publicly make some type of case against him and kill him. And Jesus just points it out. Yeah, it's interesting that it's dark, guys. This is the power of darkness. It's the work of Satan. Just, just to be clear what team you're on, you're working for the darkness. I'm in the light. I am the light. It was right around this moment that they grabbed Jesus. And when they did that, all of the disciples fled. They fled out through the garden. They just bolted. In fact, we learn in another gospel, I think it's the gospel of Mark, they grabbed one of, one of the guys there. It says all he had on was a, uh, an outer garment. That was it. And they grabbed him to take him too. Now, don't miss this. They came for Jesus, but they're going to grab anyone else they can take. They grabbed this one. We don't truly know who it was of the disciples, but they grabbed him, and he ran out of his coat or the cloak that he had on, and he bolted through that garden naked for his life for fear of being arrested and taken with Jesus. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was foretold, and it came to pass. They all fled. They all deserted him. Not one remained. They bolted. Now, the final verses here, the humbling of Peter, the humbling of Peter. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Now, the high priest at this time was Caiaphas. But the person who had the power, and we'll see this next week, is Annas. He's the first person. He is, uh, the, uh, uh, the, was the high priest. Now his son-in-law is Caiaphas. But the house apparently is shared between uh, Annas and Caiaphas. It's a big complex. And I'm pretty sure when we toured Israel, when we're in Jerusalem, that we are in what they believe was the high priest of the time of Jesus. And we got to walk through this house. In fact, we stood in a, in a little courtyard area where they believed that Jesus was held in these trials. And we, we stood in the very same place where this took place. They take him in to the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. So he circled out around and then was tracking them through the trees, all stealthy-like, you know. And, and he's coming back in, and he's able somehow, I believe John was with him, they, they go in, and they're in around this, this, this fire that's kindled in the courtyard of the high priest's home. 
which is pretty incredible. It says in another gospel that John knew somebody and was able to get them in to this courtyard. Now, that took some courage after what has just gone down. Peter took this guy's ear off it, we think, probably Peter. So they're there. They're sitting down among them. Jesus is being mocked and mistreated. We'll see that next week even more. Peter and John are there. And then, after some time goes by, around the glow of that fire, there's a servant girl, and she is just staring at Peter. And she sees his face lit up in the fire. And it says, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him. She is just drilling holes and seeing right through him. Then she speaks. Imagine how jolting that would be. This man was also with him. She announces to everybody, this man right here, this guy, he was with him. And Peter, all of a sudden, I don't think he was ready for this. I don't don't think he saw this coming. Immediately, words came out. Woman, I do not know him. I do not know him. Strike one. Just like that. I mean, boom. It happens. Before Peter can even muster up, I mean, maybe he had a speech figured out if they were going to arrest him and give him some time. That's all out the window. He has already denied knowing his Savior, the Messiah. Accused by a servant girl. Isn't that interesting? The enemy would bring that path of attack to take Peter out, to to sift him like wheat. A servant girl, unexpected. A little time goes by. It says a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also, you also are one of them. He gets pointed out again. This campfire thing is not working out for Peter. He needs a hoodie, right? Something to conceal, something more of a coverage, like a face mask or something. He should have been masking. Peter immediately responds and says, Man, I am not. Strike two. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted now. Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. They could tell by his accent. They could tell. He's not from around here. He's from Galilee. And Jesus is from Galilee. And this guy was with him. I know it. And Peter stands and he says, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Now the other Gospels build this final exchange out a little more for us. Listen to what we read in in Mark It says he began to invoke a curse upon himself. Like, listen, if if I'm lying, then curse upon me. And then he began to swear. Imagine this. The apostle Peter begins to swear and say, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't know him. He loses all control. It's the third denial. And immediately, while the words were still coming out of his mouth, as he is just frantically defending himself and cursing and pronouncing curses upon him, the rooster crows. That sovereignly appointed 
bird that was nearby crowed. That's probably not what Peter remembers, though. I think Peter will always remember what happened in that moment. Listen to these words. The Lord himself turned and looked at Peter. Now, what does this say? One, it says there's a line of sight. So, however far away Jesus is, he knows exactly this moment is coming. He knows it. It's all unfolding exactly as he said. The rooster crows, and Jesus, in the midst of all of the stuff that they're doing to him, he turns his head, and he locks eyes with Peter in the courtyard. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Another gospel writer says he broke, he broke and wept. I couldn't help but just linger on that. What, what would have been in the eyes of Jesus in that moment? Here's what I would say. I don't think it was, I told you so. I don't think it was that at all. I think it was love. I love you, Peter. I prayed for you. In this moment, I have prayed for you. I love you. You deny me, but I will not fail you. I will not deny you. I will be your Savior. Turn. Repent. Trust me. Run back to me. Cling to me. Yes, you're a sinner, but come. I don't think it was eyes of rejection or hatred. I think it was love. The most loving, locked eyes you could ever imagine. The eyes of Jesus, who was drinking the cup for those very sins that he was committing, denying he even knew the Savior. Peter is humbled and he is broken, and that's exactly what needed to happen. God is so sovereign. Remember last week? He is so sovereign that he can use to even ordain to bring to pass events like this in our lives, to so break us, bring us to the end of ourselves that we are then ready to be used by God. Broken before Him, humbled, depending, not in our own strength, but on Him totally. Our response to these things, these are powerful verses they reveal for us many things, but here's three. Here's three that just jumped out for me. The weight of our sin, the wrath of a holy and righteous God, and the wonder of God's grace. Just those three words, weight, wrath, and wonder. Uh, it's just, if we can come through the garden and not feel the weight of our sinfulness, we have not been in the garden with Jesus. The weight of our sin was such that it brought sweat to become blood. The wrath of God, we're going to see in the coming weeks, is poured out in fury and just 
incredible just wrath and indignation. That should have been me tasting that of him. And then the wonder of grace. This is the plan from the beginning. This is exactly going as has been planned, as has been ordained. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did it to glorify the Father. He did it to overcome the enemy. He did it to ransom his people from their sins. And his motive was love. The wonder of grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that at times we don't think long enough about how sinful our sin is. We confess that there are days that go by that we do not deal with our sin as we ought. We confess that there are times where we would even downplay or justify or even defend our sin between one another and before You. Oh God, we confess that we are sinners. We are truly unworthy. We fail and we fall. We thank You for Your grace. It is undeserved and free. We thank You for the the price that was paid to accomplish that saving grace. We thank You for the blood that You shed, Jesus. For uh, the body that You gave to be painfully nailed to the tree. Drained of life. Lord, we, we confess so often we fail to enter into these things as we should, but tonight we, we delight in the weight and the wonder of the wrath that You partook. We delight in the finished work that we know. We know how this story ends and it is glorious. We thank You for being the great I Am and at the same time humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save me from my sins, from the wrath of a holy God, to save us, to deliver us, to to set our feet upon the rock, to, to purchase for us a ransom, a forgiveness, a freedom, and then to bring us into Your family. Oh God, You are so good to us. We don't deserve this at all. That's why we sing. You are worthy, we are not. Jesus, you are king, you are sovereign, we are not. We make much of you tonight, Lord, as we sing, be glorified. As we go from this place, be honored and esteemed in the words we speak and the way that we live. And Lord, come, come soon. Bring an end to the death and the darkness of this world and establish your throne and we will be your happy servants. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.